So our reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 to 20, and that's on page 1147 of the Church Bibles. That's 1147, chapter 6, and starting at verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've already been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. This is God's word. Many thanks. Apologies, I should have said, um, uh, hello, my name's Matt, if we've not met, Matt Fuller. And... um, uh, if you're not joining us today, we're just this month we're doing something slightly different rather than working our way through uh, a book of the Bible, which would be our normal practice. We're uh, thinking topically uh, for this month about issues of gender and sexuality. Um, and so uh, this is the third of four that we're doing that on. Let me pray uh, and then we'll take a look at this together. Our great God and Father, again, uh, we recognize here we come to issues which uh, are very deep, very personal, and uh, affect us deeply. Uh, Some of us here have many scars uh, in this area. Some feel very nervous uh, whenever these things are discussed. Lord, we want to be faithful to you because that's the right thing. We want to be faithful to you because it's good for us. It's good to live your way. So, Father, help us understand uh, rightly what's here in the Scriptures. 
how we uh, embody that in the 21st century. Father, help us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let me just start with a quick comparison then. Uh, uh, two people. Um, so last year, it was probably in the middle of the last year, uh, we may have there, Milana, the, um, a splash was made when uh, Ellen Page, there on the left, um, done well uh, in, uh, in Hollywood, uh, star of Juno and X-Men, uh, appointed, or, excuse me, announced that um, she made the decision to uh, become a man. So Ellen Page said, no, I want to be called Elliot uh, from this point onwards, and um, that's who I am. And the response to, um, uh, well, let's, let, let, uh, Elliot, let's call him Elliot now and he, uh, the response to him was, um, was overwhelmingly positive. So typical of the cultural mood was uh, Hillary Clinton. It's wonderful to witness people becoming who they are. Congratulations, Elliot. People becoming who they are. Uh, but I read an arresting piece um, by the chap on the, uh, on the right, Beckett Cook, which was in response to that. He was a production designer uh, in the fashion world of Hollywood. And uh, a little before uh, Ellen became Elliot, uh, he had sort of very publicly declared that uh, he no longer identified as a gay man because he was following Christ and wanted to live differently. He met a somewhat different response. So a number of his lifelong friends just dropped him. And so uh, he wrote this. Why the double standard? Eliot declares that he has finally become his authentic self. And that gets celebrated. Why doesn't our culture celebrate my decision to be my authentic self? Is my authentic self less worthy of praise than his? And of course the answer is, in our culture, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's inconsistent. I mean, surely if Hillary Clinton is one, it's just one person, isn't it wonderful to witness people becoming who they are? Well, Beckett Cook says, well, I've become who, I'm, who I am. Yeah, we don't like that. We don't like that. Not that. It's somewhat confusing. Good to be true to yourself. Oh, if, if it fits a modern cultural narrative. I thought it was very strikingly put. Um, Douglas Murray, the commentator, uh, uh, his book, The Madness of Crowds, is striking in lots of ways. He's, a, he's an openly um, a gay man and um, well known in that regard. But... Um, he finds all this a bit bewildering. So in The Madness of Crowds, he wrote, when people come out as gay, they're celebrated for having arrived at their natural endpoint. They've arrived at the place that is natural, right for them to be. But one oddity of this position is that anyone who's gay and then subsequently says, no, actually, I'm going to live at the straight, they're, they become the subject not just of a degree of ostracism and suspicion, but widespread doubt. You are not being true to yourself. And even he says, I don't understand why some identities are celebrated, but others are rejected. It's not right. It's very strange. So we're thinking this morning in this third uh, of these four, what defines you? 
what are you going to say, I am dot, dot, dot. What defines you? I don't know if you've ever had the miserable exercise of, well, everybody, if you apply for a job, you have to do something a bit like this, I guess. You know, how would you define yourself? You know, strengths and weaknesses. Or if it gets really reductionistic, how would you define yourself in five words? I mean, oh, come on. Um, uh, I need a lot more words uh, than that. And, and so do you. We all do that. I remember um, when we were involved years ago with uh, adoption services, we had to go through this exercise. We had to define yourself in five words. Define your spouse in five words. Define your mother your father in five words. You think, oh, that's, what? How do you even do that? But that's ghastly. But if you had to do it, if you did have to do it, what would it be? And it seems to me in the 21st century, increasingly, uh, the go-to words are ones of sexuality and ethnicity. Um, so amazing how often, if you, if you just read a newspaper article, whoever it may be, John Smith who is a, you know, whatever it would be. Or I am a young, white, male, heterosexual man. I am a middle-aged, black, gay woman. Um, those are the things that people reach for straight away now. Ethnicity, sexuality. What do you do for a job? Who cares? You know, I think 20 years ago, you know, well, what, well I'm a woodsmith, I'm a carpenter, I'm a blacksmith, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a whatever it may be. Now it's... Sexuality, ethnicity, those are the more obvious go-to terms, certainly in journalism. But this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, it throws up the question, if you, particularly if you're a Christian, who are you? And if you're a Christian, Paul would want to say, you're not your own. You were bought at a great price. But that is very wonderful. Who are you? You're a child of the living God. And that definition is more important than anything else that you could add to it. What defines you? Lots of things. I want more than five words, and so would you. But above all else, a child of God belonging to Jesus Christ. Above all else. Uh, as I say, this is the third of four. Uh, what have we done? Uh, the first week we looked at what is your authority? Is it the uh, unreliable personal experience? Which is all, it's all true, but are you going to allow that to define? Or the timeless word of God? Which is your authority? Uh, which comes first? Uh, last week we thought about what's the purpose of marriage to reflect the love that Christ has for his church primarily. Uh, this week then, what defines you? You were bought at the great price of Jesus' life, that defines you more than anything else if you're a Christian. Four little things, we'll run through uh, them pretty quickly. Um, don't be deceived, don't be defined, don't think your body doesn't matter, you have a new value, okay, we'll work through these. First, first of all then, verses nine and 10. Uh, don't be deceived, this matters. It really matters. So chapter six and verse nine. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the, there's a list here, sexually immoral, idolaters, idolaters, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Have you tested positive for COVID in the last few days? I'm afraid you can't get into Australia, you can't get into New Zealand, you just can't. Are you 
ongoing in one of these patterns of behavior, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You just can't. Now, to clarify, he's talking about ongoing, unrepentant activity. It's not, oh, look, I slandered someone back in 2013. I was greedy for the whole of 2017. I didn't give any money away at all last year. Once, you know, not that I, I, I had a one-night stand with someone 10 years ago. Not, you know, whatever. No, not, not those things. Ongoing. I know this is wrong, but I'm persevering with it. That's what he's describing here. Four out of ten here are related to sexual activity. So the list is headed by the sexually immoral, that's just any sex outside of marriage. Then you get uh, adultery, married people having sex outside of marriage. Then um, the third and fourth, nor men who have sex with men, you can see from the footnote, it translates two Greek words, the dominant penetrator, the passive receiver. So those four. And I presume they're just illustrative of sexual sin because this list precedes his main complaint here in verses 12 to 19 that clearly some men in Corinth are visiting prostitutes and carrying on with that. But do you see what's at stake here? You cannot carry on in unrepentant sin, in, in, for our sake this morning, unrepentant sexual sin, and inherent, you cannot carry on in those things and inherit the kingdom of God. You can't do that and go to heaven. You can't. Because there's one simple condition, I guess, to salvation in the Bible, and it's repentance and faith. You say, I'm going to stop living for myself. Trust Jesus, live for him. So it isn't kind to tell someone committing adultery in an ongoing affair that heaven awaits them. That's not kind because they can have no confidence of that. It's not kind to avoid teaching this truth because it offends some people because we need to be clear on it. And it's not kind to say, well, look, we all believe different things in this area, don't we? And as long as you call yourself a Christian, what does it matter about, about this? Because Paul says, don't be deceived. This really matters. You can't say this is a matter of indifference. Eternal salvation is at stake. And so kindness, kindness is calling people to repent of ongoing sin so that they can enter kingdom of heaven so don't be deceived this matters he says secondly don't be defined by temptation don't allow your struggles to define who you are so verse 11 um, and that is what some of you were these patterns of behavior but but when you become a Christian there's a fundamental change and sometimes, even those who've been Christians for a long time, we, we just forget that. There's been a fundamental rupture in who we were and who we now are for good. And so the, it's clunky, so it doesn't translate it this way, but three times the, the, the Greek text used the word but. Uh, that's what some of you were. But you were washed clean of your sins. All gone. There, there, there's a list of all mine. 
Well, you can't see them because fortunately they're washed clean and that's true for you too. All washed clean when you become a Christian, but you were washed. But secondly, you were sanctified. That is set apart for the Lord, set apart from a godless lifestyle. But thirdly, you were justified. God sees you wrapped in the moral perfection of Jesus. That's how he sees you. And so Paul's saying, look, some of you were enmeshed and defined by those sins, but you set, you've been set free now. They no longer define who you are. I don't know if you saw uh, last uh, early autumn, end of the summer, Bernard Randall, sorry, I forgot to put him on the screen, but Bernard Randall uh, was sacked from his role at uh, chaplain at Trent College in uh, Nottingham. So it's a Christian foundation school uh, in origin, but uh, they had a group come in um, from outside the school, and um, the group was called educate and celebrate, and they were invited into the school to, quote, embed gender, gender identity and sexual orientation to the fabric of the school. That's quite something, isn't it? We, we invite this group in to embed into the fabric of the school 21st century ideas of gender fluidity and sexual identity. Now, by foundation, it's a Christian school. Now, you can go and read online the, uh, the sermon that Bernard Randall preached in chapel after this group came in. It's, I mean, as he says, I pulled my punches, I bottled it, I completely bottled it <laughs> in the sermon. But he does say to the pupils there, um, you don't have to run with modern orthodoxy. Let me encourage you to think for yourselves what you believe on these issues. Particularly when they run contrary to the teaching of the foundation of this school. And for that he was sacked. If you meet him, he's the most timid, gentle, mild-mannered. You can't imagine him saying boo to a goose. He's a very sweet man, sacked. Which is amazing. These phrases are quite new, really. The whole idea of sexual orientation, late 19th century. Gender identity only defined or only becomes a phrase in the 1960s. And yet these now, that's what the school wants to embed in their fabric and reject their heritage is a Christian school. Paul says here, no, <laughs> no, no, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you've completely changed. There's a sense in which, just leave aside all the adjectives. Don't say, I'm a philandering Christian, I'm a drunk Christian, I'm a porn addicted Christian, I'm a heterosexual Christian, I'm a homosexual Christian. Just don't, just, just don't use the adjective. Just don't use it. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. And you don't need the qualifiers. Don't define yourself by them. Now, each and every one of us will have our struggles, maybe with alcohol or, or porn or whatever it may be, but don't define yourself by them. You're different now. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. Striking just at the end of that verse 11, you're justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The whole Trinity is involved. Christ died for you. God the Father sent his Spirit to live within you. And yes, it's a battle this side of heaven. And there's temptation. 
But whatever your temptation is and whatever your sexual struggle is, don't let it define you. That is orphan mentality. That's the sense I'm alone and have to struggle on my own rather than I'm a child of the living God. His spirit dwells within me. I can live for him. It's a battle, but I can live for him. Don't, let, don't be defined by temptation. Third, uh, don't think your body doesn't matter, verses uh, 12 to 19. Now, you get to the beginning here, verses 12 and 13, three very modern-sounding slogans. Uh, so first, verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say. Paul says, quoting the Corinthians, but he replies, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you say. That's a very modern-sounding slogan, isn't it? I can do what I want with my body. If we are consenting adults, no one gets hurt, what is it to do with anyone else? I mean, they were saying it 2,000 odd years ago, so it's not that modern a slogan. We're consenting adults, no one gets hurt. What's the problem? Uh, well, the problem is people do get hurt. I'll give you a few little examples. So the Ofsted report, uh, the school inspector's report published um, uh, in the autumn, sexual harassment including online sexual abuse, has become normalized for children and young people. So in secondary school, nine out of 10 girls reported sexist name-calling and receiving unwanted explicit pictures. Nine out of 10. Well, look, we're adults, age 11. We're adults, and so who gets hurt? Well, lots of people. I mean, they may not shout about it, but if you ask them, they don't like it. Last month, uh, Newsweek had a headline I was just drawn to. Um, Hayley McGee, the headline was, I gave consent for sex I didn't want to have. And um, it was a striking article she wrote about the trauma of giving consent to unwanted sex. And she, this is incredibly common now. So she said, I speak to lots of women about, quote, what she calls blameless sexual trauma. I think we need to talk about the trauma that can be experienced from a consensual act. So she describes just growing up and gave, cons you know, consent was given for a sexual encounter, but she didn't really want to. And then the, the report goes into others, lots of guys as well have sexual encounters that don't really want to, actually. They just culturally feel they ought to, and they've found themselves in a situation, and, well, they've got to carry through, obviously, because that's what you have to do. Um, and the emotional trauma afterwards. So consent given, but not, but not, but no desire. And uh, the striking thing afterwards is I, I read it online and then just the comments run to thousands. Thank you so much. This is my experience. Wow. There was a third, actually, I'm not going to show it um, because it was just in the paper on Thursday. Okay, just an article, just the national, one of the national papers, uh, a woman saying, oh, yeah, I, I've given consent. But on three occasions, I'm a 20-something, but on three occasions I've given consent in a sexual encounter, but in the end, the guy has entered me in an unexpected place. I didn't give consent for that. Um, confusing. 
we, well, we've got consent, so it's all fine. Yeah, but not really. Not really. Not really at all. And so the dear, outdated, fuddy-duddy Christian model of you teach, of teaching that we relate to one another as brothers and sisters with absolute purity. And you know when there's consent because you've stood together in the front of church and declared it. Actually starts to look quite appealing in the wake of sort of mess and brokenness and the trauma of people's lives. Sorry, let's pick up the pace. That's just the first. I have the right to do anything. It's my body, got consent. Not everything's beneficial, says Paul. Here's the second. I have the right to do anything. Yeah, but I'll not be mastered by anything, Paul says. Again, I think the, the argument here is, oh, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. And Paul's response, no, actually those who have self-control are free because they're not mastered by their urges, their desires. So um, if you hear last week spoke about the, the uh, secular reports on the decline of young men having sex, so nationally now, the, the number of guys in their 18 to 30 having sex is just dropping, 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 dropping. Uh, less than a third or fewer than a third would have a sexual encounter at university. And you can think, well, that's good and it's healthy. But all the evidence in an in interview is because it's not because of chastity, it's fear. So guys aren't having sex because they're scared. Two reasons. Scared of having to perform in a way they can't. And also scared that they just... They, well, scared because they know they can't. So it's the fear of performance, and literally they can't perform. So 20% of 18 to 30-year-old men in, this, in the UK take Viagra. 20% of 18 to 30-year-old men in the UK use Viagra. 18 to 30-year-olds. That is not right. And all evidence suggests it's because of their brains have just been completely screwed up by porn and they fall if they can't perform in real life. So isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful, the liberation that the world has brought in, in the sexual arena? And secular science is saying, no, we're really screwing this up. We've got a, lot of, we've got a completely screwed up generation. Um, um, um. Third little slogan here. Verse 13, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Yeah, look, I've got a food, I need to eat it, I've got a sexual urge, I need to satisfy it, seems to be the argument here. You watch, you, you, you know, you watch the animals, they go at it, and the Attenborough programs, and I, I'm just an animal and I need to go at it as well. But Paul says, no, no, it's a slightly longer response to this one. Verse 13, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He'll raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. You say, look, what you do with your bodies, it really matters. If you are married, the argument seems to be, if you are married, well, you're united to your spouse. That's what happens in a marriage. You become one flesh. Could you imagine then bringing home a prostitute and saying, spouse, can you watch me engage in sexual, in sex with this prostitute? I'd like you to watch on. 
and then they go home and you declare to your spouse, I love you with all my heart. I mean, that's horrific. I mean, what? You would never do that. And Paul's saying, well, that's what's going on here. Why would you, you're united to Christ if you're a Christian, you belong to him. Why would you engage in sexual immorality and then the next day say, oh, but I love you, Jesus? You can't do that, is the argument. It's unthinkable, he says. And so verse 18, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. It's not, it's not that sexual sins are worse, biblically, but our sexuality is such a significant part of us, they leave deeper scars, seems to be what he's saying here. Some would have read um, Rosaire Champagne Butterfield, who's, who's written beautifully and wonderfully uh, a couple of books in this arena. She just observes, why is sexual sin so hard to cope with? Her response, because often sexual sin, it becomes a sin of who I am. It becomes a sin of identity. Sexual sin just leaves deeper scars on us. Not worse, not more difficult for Jesus to forgive. We just get scarred. So don't be deceived, this matters. Don't be defined by your temptations. Don't think your body doesn't matter, it really does. But positively, as we finish, positively, verses 19 and 20, you have a new value. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We'll see in a moment Dearly we're bought, highly esteemed, redeemed by Jesus, blood redeemed. We, we need to say that to one another. Dearly we're bought. Dearly we're bought. It costs Jesus a lot because he loves us. Dearly we're bought, but it was worth it, according to the living God. Dearly we're bought by his love. What price love? During the miserable season of COVID, when it was just you know, flying around the world, was a complete shocker. I mean, some here had to do it. Loved one on the other side of the world, unwell. You pay a gazillion pounds for your ticket, and then you pay thousands of pounds for the privilege of staying in a grim hotel uh, for two weeks, and then you have to do the same when you come back here. You pay through the nose, uh, but, what? but of course you do. Of course you do to see someone you love, because what price love? Jesus gave his life. He endured God's righteous anger against you and countless billions throughout history. He went through an intensity of suffering that none of us will ever know because of love. So we need to say to one another, who are you? Who am I? I'm a child of God, dearly loved brother and sister of Christ. He was willing to pay an extraordinary price for me. His spirit dwells within me so I can live differently. I'm washed, I'm sanctified, I'm justified. I can be different now. That's who I am. Beckett Cook, who I mentioned at the beginning, 
when um, Ellen became Elliot Page, he, uh, that piece he wrote, he, says, he went on to say, I've got real sympathy for Ellen, for Elliot, he calls her Elliot. I've real sympathy for Elliot. Elliot Page wrote when she transitioned, my joy is real, but my joy is fragile. I'm scared. And he says, Elliot Page writes several times how scared he is, how scared he is. His tone suggests that the new self is alarmingly dependent upon the affirmation and acceptance of others. He says, so he said, I really feel for her. He says, by contrast, and we may have the, uh, by contrast, he puts it in these terms. He says, I, I'm, look, I lost everything. I'm not complaining or claiming to be a victim. What I gained in Christ is absolutely priceless. Yes, the loss of close friendships and a lucrative career, they were harsh. But being in the kingdom of God more than compensates. I'm royalty, an heir of God, a fellow heir with Christ. My joy is not fragile in that it depends upon the affirmation of others. My joy is secure because I'm in Christ. What defines you? Well, every human is defined above all else by being made in the image of God. That's an enormous privilege. If you're a Christian, what defines you are beyond that. That Jesus has paid an extraordinary price to make you a child of God. God is your father. Jesus is your brother. The spirit dwells within you. That is what defines you. We are many other things besides, and we want more than five words. But that, that defines you more than anything else. Let's pray together. Father, again, these are sensitive issues for us, for those we love. We recognize, uh, many of us, the scars that we may feel over uh, sexual sin of the past. We recognize the, the hurt, the exhaustion we may feel at times from the battle in the present. But Father, would we know the, uh, the, the joy, the freedom as Paul, expect, uh, um, Paul describes it of being one who belongs to the Lord Jesus, bought an extraordinary price, his spirit dwelling within us so that we can resist sexual sin. We don't have to give in. Father, again, we pray this because it's for our good. <laughs> to live as you designed us to be is for our good and we cause enormous pain to ourselves and others by denying it. Father, would we do so for our good as well as the honor of your name? Father, help us to be those who delight in being bought by the blood of Jesus and belonging to him. Amen.